Hi everyone, my name's Lynn and I attend the 6pm service with my husband Mike. Today I'm going to be reading God's Word from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 3 to 12. Please follow along with me. We ought always to thank God for you brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to, to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, back in December of 1999, uh, Christine and I spent a couple of weeks in England. We stayed on the edge of the London metro area at West Ealing, and so we travelled a few times into London on the tube. And two things were really noticeable on the railway stations in London. Firstly, there were no rubbish bins. Uh, tensions were still high with the IRA, and so the fear of bombs being planted had led to the removal of all bins which meant that there was a lot of rubbish on the platforms. Secondly, there was the ubiquitous call to mind the gap every time a train arrived at the station. Now, of course, that phrase was already iconic by that time. You could buy fridge magnets, T-shirts, other tourist gifts with mind the gap emblazoned on them. And the purpose of the phrase, of course, was to remind people to be careful when they were stepping in and out of trains, as there was often a gap between the platform and the train. And so everyone was routinely warned so that their steps would match the reality. Now, as we start a five-week series today called GRIP, we too need to mind the gap between the convictions that believers readily hold, but which don't always compel us to share the gospel as they should. We're going to be unpacking five biblical truths that should move us to share the gospel but because of various reasons can lead to a gap between what we hold to be true and the steps that we take. As we plan toward a church plant in Calderwood by 2023, and as we're hopefully struck by the increased opportunities to share our faith in these uncertain times in Wollongong, 
we need to be reminded of foundational beliefs that are meant to spur us to always be ready to give an account of the hope that we have in Christ. In our first installment today, we're considering the eternal realities of heaven and hell and how they should grip us as we interact with those around us. The big question that we're going to consider is this. Why should the reality of heaven and hell compel us to share the gospel? Well, there are two answers that we'll consider to that today. The first answer to our question is this. Because the hope of heaven is glorious. Because the hope of heaven is glorious. So notice again what is recorded in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 and verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes, God is just. He will repay back. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And verse 10, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Well, at the heart of any discussion about the eternal realities of heaven and hell is the character of God. In particular, his commitment to justice. At the start of verse 6, we are told that God is just. God is all about just outcomes. It is just in God's sight to grant rest to persecuted believers and for persecutors to be punished. And this is not because Christians are better people or less sinful but purely because they have believed the gospel testimony in verse 10. They have placed their faith in Christ's death and resurrection, which paid for their sin and won victory over its consequence of death. But the timing of when this relief and punishment will occur is explained in verse 7. And this moves the teaching into the wider theme of eternal realities. Notice that relief is not promised in this life, but in the life to come. Both salvation and judgment hinge on the work of God's Son, Jesus. And he is the one whose second coming will signal the final judgment, where there will be both relief and trouble. Notice the description in verse 7, which highlights the risen Christ's power and authority. He will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. The fire and angels represent the execution of God's judgment through Jesus. And so this highlights how glorious heaven will be, how our hearts should be in awe and wonder at what God has planned for believers. And what we see expressed in verse 10 gives us just a glimpse of the essence of heaven and why it is so glorious. The focus notice is on Jesus and believers honoring him the one who will end sin and suffering and bring justice. He will be given glory by the holy angels and Christians will marvel as they join in. Now the phrase uh, to be marveled at means admire or honour in this context. You see, heaven is not primarily about us, nor even what it looks like, but it's about God and his honour. So notice what the Apostle Paul records in his well-known opening description of heaven in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 12. 
we read there, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. See, the focus of heaven is God's glory and our relationship with him through Christ and the removal of sin and suffering that comes with that right, perfected relationship. And so this world here is not our home. We'll, we'll never be content or satisfied here. It's just like when you go on holiday and you soon end up getting homesick or longing for your own bed. So it is spiritually. And without sin, the consequences of suffering and our great enemy of death are removed. And so in verse 4, the only thing that has died now is the old order. In the new creation, the overwhelming shadow of pain has been completely removed. So it does beg the question for us, do we think about heaven often? If not, it will be hard for you to express how wonderful it is to a non-believer. And yet we're called to express our hope clearly. In 1 Peter 3 verse 15 we read, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone for who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You see, the reality of heaven is just so glorious that it should compel us to share the gospel because we don't want anyone to miss out on this amazing future. And yet, we often fail to share this wonderful hope that we have when non-Christians are open to hearing about heaven. You know, surveys undertaken in the United States regularly report that at least 70 to 80 percent of those questioned claim to believe in heaven. And there are well over 100 books on heaven currently in print with titles such as Caught Up Into Paradise, topping the bestseller lists. This makes sense, as the Bible tells us that God has wired us with this longing. Now, Ecclesiastes 3.11 states that God has set eternity in the human heart. So why do we hold back? Well, apart from not dwelling on heaven ourselves regularly, there are several possible reasons. Firstly, there's the preoccupation with the present. That's one possible reason. We're surrounded by what we can see and hear, touch, taste, smell. You know, the daily realities of our busy lives, they tend to block out the future so that we don't share our hope. Secondly, we are too comfortable. For the most part, we're comparatively rich, we're reasonably healthy, and so we just become consumed with this world. We live as if heaven is on earth until tragedy interrupts our comfort or a pandemic frustrates our lifestyle. Thirdly, perhaps we neglect heaven because it just doesn't seem all that appealing. You know, if our vision of heaven is a church service that just goes on forever, then it might seem a boring place. We often have these misconceptions about heaven, you know, imagining people in white clothes with wings sitting on fluffy clouds, like one of those Philadelphia cream cheese ads from the 80s, or we're clumsy as a result, communicating its beauty. And so we don't hold out our hope to others. 
And finally, perhaps, uh, we think that heaven just doesn't seem practical. You know, the world wants what is relevant now. And so we don't want to seem so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good. Our non-Christian friends want pressing social issues solved now. You know, not some future day when everything will be sorted out. Well, I hope you can hear how short-sighted those outlooks are for those who claim to have a transforming hope. As we conclude this first point, I think our core problem is that we just don't long for heaven. The Puritans of the 17th century England would spend an hour every morning just thinking about heaven. It was a spiritual discipline. And out of this reflection, they wrote many prayers about heaven, which express why we should long for heaven. One of those prayers says the following, Quicken my hunger and thirst after the realm above. Here I can have the world, but there I shall have you through Christ. Here are gross comforts, more burden than benefit. There there is joy without sorrow, comfort without suffering, love without inconstancy, rest without weariness. Well, that's a glorious hope which must be shared by believers. And that brings us to a second answer to our question of why heaven and hell should compel us to share the gospel. Secondly, because hell is all too real. Because hell is all too real. Notice again what is recorded in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this time verses 8 and 9. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God's character is overwhelmingly marked by love and mercy. When he first reveals his heart in Deuteronomy 34 to Moses, he describes himself as compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. But God's tender mercy towards sinners in the sending of his son to rescue us does not mean that he ignores the ugliness of our sin if we reject his offer of salvation. And this is what verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians 1 clearly states. He will punish those who don't respond to the gospel. We can only know God through responding to the gospel by repenting of our sin and placing our faith in Jesus. Now that is reason enough to share the good news with others. But the Apostle Paul goes on to describe the nature of that punishment in verse 9. And it's a description of hell. The opening phrase, they will be punished, is legal language, which means to pay the consequences for some action. The duration of the punishment is everlasting, and the nature of it is to be shut out from God's presence. God is the source of everything that is good, and so to be shut out from God is to be removed from everything that makes life worth living, that sustains peace and joy. The Bible's teaching on hell is that it is a real place, not just a state of mind. It's a place of conscious, eternal punishment. 
Now, even though most people in our society today don't believe that such a place exists, they find the concept of hell deeply offensive. And with such a definition, it's not surprising because this description is terrifying. And so we certainly need to acknowledge as believers that we take no joy in raising God's judgment. We can quickly agree with the famous Christian author C.S. Lewis who once said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. And it has always been held by Christianity and it has the support of reason. But the picture is so bleak that many people in our society reject the idea that God could be compassionate and gracious if he could also send anyone to hell. And so several objections are raised. And they can cause Christians to avoid sharing the hope they have too, because we're aware of them, confronted by them. Firstly, to some, for instance, wrath suggests a loss of self-control. Now, it's argued that surely uh, to talk of God's anger against sin puts a big question mark over his goodness. A second objection is that the idea of hell suggests cruelty. A punishment as terrifying as hell could only be the work of a malicious being, people argue, that delights in suffering. And a third reason that's given is that hell just seems disproportionate, given our goodness. You know, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. We're not that bad. Now, we could address the first objection about loss of self-control by saying that God's anger is not like ours but instead it's a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. We could address the second objection about cruelty by noting that the Bible is clear, that God's judgments are measured and judicial. They're according to what each person has said and done. And we could address the third objection of hell being disproportionate by pointing out that we just don't see our sin as serious as a rejection of the rightful rule of our creator over us, that hell is a conscious continuation of a state in which a person has chosen to be, that is, apart from God. But the most important point is to speak of Jesus bearing our punishment so that we don't have to face hell. This is where God's wrath and mercy meet. Jesus was forsaken by God the Father so that we don't have to be. And so in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, we hear Christ's cry of abandonment from the cross. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, here we see the seriousness of our sin and God's commitment to punish it in all its horror. The only sinless person to ever live, Jesus, has our sin placed upon him. The innocent one bears the righteous judicial punishment of the Father for our rebellion, for our self-rule, so that we might be offered forgiveness. Now, the Father turns his face away from his Son rather than turning his face away from us forever in hell if we will receive this payment on our behalf. And so here is God's love and mercy on display. God punished himself 
as there was no other way for justice to be met. On April 26, 2003, uh, during a solo descent of Blue John Canyon in southeastern Utah, Aaron Ralston dislodged a boulder, pinning his right wrist to the side of a canyon wall. He had not informed anyone of his hiking plans, nor did he have any way to call for help. Assuming that he would die without intervention, he spent five days slowly sipping his small amount of remaining water, approximately 350 mils, slowly eating his small amount of food, while repeatedly trying to extricate his arm. But his efforts were futile as he was just unable to free his arm from a 360 kilogram stone. After three days of trying to lift, to break the boulder, do anything he could, the dehydrated and delirious Ralston prepared to amputate his trapped arm at a point on his mid-forearm in order to escape. After experimenting with tourniquets, having made some exploratory superficial cuts to his forearm, he realized on the fourth day that in order to free his arm, he would have to cut through the bones in it. After running out of food and water on the fifth day, he carved his name and date of birth, presumed date of death as well, into the sandstone canyon wall that he was jammed between. He didn't expect to survive the night. But after waking at dawn the following day, he discovered that his arm had begun to decompose due to the lack of circulation, and he became desperate to tear it off. He amputated his forearm with his multi-tool with the painful process taking an hour. And after freeing himself, Ralston climbed out of the slot canyon in which he had been trapped and then hiked out of the canyon. Ralston had feared that he would bleed to death. He had lost 18 kilos, including 25% of his blood volume. But rescuers searching for him picked him up by helicopter approximately four hours after he had amputated his arm. But now just imagine... If someone had investigated the site afterwards and found that, you know, if he had just turned his arm in a different way, he need not have cut off his arm. He could have escaped. Ralston actually returned to the accident scene with an NBC camera crew six months later on his 28th birthday. But his severed hand and forearm had been retrieved from under the boulder by park authorities soon after the incident. But there just was no other way, you see. It had taken 13 men, a winch, a hydraulic jack, to move the boulder so that Ralston's severed arm could be removed. There was no other way. And Christ's unanswered prayer in Gethsemane shows that there was no other way for God to display his justice while upholding his mercy. As I consider the reality of hell, it makes me shudder at times. And I say at times because for the most part, I don't dwell on it. And yet I should. If I did, then I would pray daily, desperately, for every unbeliever I know, for only God can save a person from the consequences of their sin. Like you, I have friends and family who are facing a Christless eternity. And so we need to share the good news about Jesus with urgency. I mean, here is the spur of the Great Commission. God calls us to reach out to people because the clock is ticking. This is the only loving thing to do when we know that there is a judgment to come.
Penn Gillette, an actor, a TV personality, an activist, an atheist, said in 2009, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them because this would make it socially awkward, well, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? Christians should agree with this. Now, of course, as we share the good news, we are to do so with humility. We are just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. But as we consider the question today, why should the reality of heaven and hell compel us to share the gospel? We have to see that the hope of heaven is glorious and hell is all too real. And so we have great news to share. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are a merciful and gracious God, that you have granted us salvation through the giving of your Son, the Lord Jesus, that it's through him and his work alone that sin can be dealt with, that our broken relationship can be mended, that we can be offered life. Oh Lord, we pray that you might help us to marvel again at the gospel and to see the urgent need of us to share it with all those around us so that they too might know the glorious hope that we share. We pray for your help, the leading of your, your spirit to do so with energy and with conviction. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to hear from Matt Meek now about how these eternal realities apply in his conversations on university campuses.